Welcome back, everyone, to the CFC 365 podcast. As I mentioned in our last episode, we would have Ben Jacobs back with us here today, and he is. He's going to answer all of your questions that you've been sending in to me over on Twitter. But the main bulk of this episode will be going through the new board structure, talking about the individuals that Todd Bowley has hired slash set to hire and the role that they will play at Chelsea. Ben, first things first, how are you doing? I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Um, not sure if I'm looking forward to Chelsea coming back, but I've been enjoying the World Cup. But yeah, I'm doing good <laughs> nonetheless. Um, so Ben, let's kick things off then, shall we, with our first fan question um, that comes in for you. So it's actually from Bertram, who I know at won it twice on Twitter. How does he see the mood? So this is obviously to you. How does Ben see the mood within the Chelsea camp right now? And are there any notable differences his experience with Graham Potter? And then he's put in brackets. Bra- brackets stuff like willingness to talk to media etc well i think that graham potter's media trained thomas tuchel as well enjoyed some of the media responsibilities but naturally was a bit frostier or maybe less media trained after losses and that's normal for a manager but graham potter knows how to deal with the media he had a great relationship with the press when he was at brighton and that will continue at chelsea every manager is different and that's what's kind of interesting as a journalist that when there's a ownership change a manager change even new players your dynamic shifts so your sources never stay the same your relationships are constantly evolving and with graham potter he's relatively open book He never gives too much away, but he's amenable, he's honest, he's humorous, he's genial, he's very easy to work with. And Thomas Tuchel was also great from a media perspective as well because he was full of sound bites and he wore his heart on his sleeve. So there's not really a change because you get the same media opportunities, but there's certainly different personalities. And then I think mood-wise, Chelsea are where they were, internally anyway, when this new ownership group came in. They're ambitious, they're building a model, they know it's a work in progress, and there's an element, of course, of learning on the job as well. But there is the mood of the fan base and the mood of Twitter and the internal mood, and they're three different moods. The wider fan base, I think, appreciates that things are going to take time, and Chelsea have been through a difficult few months. I think the Twitter fan base is more panic-prone, and then internally, it's about trying to filter all of that out and just build the structure, build the model and get some results in the short term to calm everybody down. Yeah, um, I agree, to be honest. It's very interesting, obviously, to hear, like, the shift. I think that's one thing we don't really talk about with journalists. Obviously, like, when a manager changes, your sources change and you have to not start all over again, but there's obviously different changes within that. So, yeah, that's obviously very interesting. So, the second question, Ben, comes from CFC Aiden 2. He asks about midfielder options in January. Do you think we will go for a midfielder? Um, and then, obviously, he asks about the striker as well. Uh, Dusan Vlahovic, obviously, you mentioned on Twitter, but it's just been revealed this morning. I'm not sure if you saw him in, but uh, Fabrizio did an exclusive. I think Matt Law and a few others are on it about Chelsea close or have agreeing a fee with uh, David or for David Datro Fafana from Molder. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that as well if you know anything. Absolutely. Both Fabrizio and Matt, excellent journalists, and they're correct in their line of reporting as my understanding is concerned as well. So Fabrizio broke this particular exclusive. And I think what is very interesting about it is that this particular player was, guess what, a Brighton target. They thought they were getting close 
a few weeks back and suddenly Chelsea have moved fast. So that strikes me as being evidence that the likes of Graham Potter, Carl McCauley, Paul Wynn Stanley, who started with immediate effect, are heavily involved in the decision. And we know that Chelsea want to buy young and for the future. And David Datro Fafana is another example of that. And the fee will be in excess of 10 million euros. And this was always the number that Mulder wanted, by the way. So there was an inquiry from Brighton and they never quite agreed upon a fee. They thought that anything above about 7 million euros, as I understand it, was too high. And then Chelsea have come in and promised a whole lot more with no doubt preferable conditions as well, such as add-ons, should he play a certain number of games for the first team. And in all likelihood, a sell-on percentage as well in case things don't work out and he goes elsewhere. So this is exactly what Chelsea are looking for in the long run. Fafana's already won caps for the Ivory Coast. So there's that international experience as well. And in addition to that, he's in excellent form at club level as well. And he's not just a goal scorer, but an assister as well. And that versatility and that ability to move across a front line, as well as being a focal point, is what attracts Chelsea to the player. So not a signed deal yet, but everything in place to suggest that that one will be over the line very soon. So one to watch, and it shows you that Chelsea, again, are thinking concurrently about two things, their future and young talent, and how potentially some of these players will fit into a multi-club model. And then on top of that, they need more proven immediate talent, which is where perhaps a striker like Dusan Vlaevic could come into the equation. Ivan Tony on Chelsea's radar, but we need to wait and see what the punishment is for alleged betting breaches and how long that might keep him out of the game. But there's many names now, not just because of the Amanda Broyer injury. Chelsea were always looking for striker reinforcements. They know that Christopher Nkunku will be coming in now in the summer, but that's not a transfer that's possible in January. Never on the cards because Leipzig don't want to lose in mid-season, especially because they're still in the Champions League. And in addition to that, you also have the fact that Nkunku himself really didn't want to have to deal with, and this was before he got injured, a situation where he would be basically having to build up to a World Cup and also consider putting all that sort of pathway in place to leave mid-season. So a summer move was always only going to be possible with Nkunku, but there's more goals and assists, of course, incoming. So that's a decent opportunity for Chelsea to be in good shape as far as next season is concerned, but they know they need goals. So with the striker, you have Vlaovic, who might be available in January. I still think summer's more likely, and the agent is pushing hard because the player's not particularly happy under Max Allegri. So Juventus may argue he's only been at the club a year. He scored six Serie A goals in 10 games, and they paid a lot of money for him. But I think that if the right offer comes, there is 100% an opportunity for someone to make a move. And then it just depends on whether if the right offer at the correct value came in and Juventus were prepared to cash in and they may need to because they've got lots of off-field problems, their board have resigned, they're under an investigation for essentially alleged false accounting. So all of that adds up to quite an unsettled club 
and they're not guaranteed Champions League football by any stretch of the imagination next season either because they've had a poor first half to the season. So Vlaevic is in form and that may allow a window of opportunity for someone to come in either in January or the summer. And Juventus is certainly braced for offers and the agent is definitely investigating with many clubs, including Chelsea, the possibility of a 2023 move. So that's where we are with the strikers. I think it's worth also pointing out in case it's another question that Cristiano Ronaldo and Chelsea, highly, highly unlikely, as I've reported pretty consistently throughout the last few months, even though Thomas Tuchel's not there. Graham Potter is equally a roadblock and Todd Bowley would very much have to put his foot down and basically play the ownership card if Cristiano Ronaldo is even to be considered. But you look at the manner in which he did the interview with Piers Morgan, the fallout with Eric Ten Hag, Cristiano Ronaldo's lack of respect for the manager, how he also criticised Ralph Ranić and said he didn't know who Ranić was, and the fact that even though they didn't have a bust-up per se, there was clearly friction between Santos and Ronaldo at the World Cup when Ronaldo was benched, and all of this dirty laundry has been aired in public. So what that does is it shows Chelsea what they might inherit with Cristiano Ronaldo if he's not starting games, if he's unhappy. And when you're a young manager like Graham Potter, already under a little bit of pressure at Chelsea, the last thing Potter will want is to inherit Ronaldo and all of that drama at the age of 37. So I think that Cristiano Ronaldo and Chelsea is very, very unlikely. And because of what's transpired in public, I even believe that Todd Bowley's perspective on bringing Ronaldo to the club will have changed dramatically from the summer to now. So that's where we are with the strikers. Chelsea will move. They will sign a striker in January. And that was always the plan, really, even before Broglie got injured. The midfield is more interesting for me in terms of whether Chelsea stick or twist in January because they are waiting on Declan Rice as a key, key priority and they believe that's possible. There are other clubs pushing hard as well, but they certainly think that West Ham will soften on price and are resigned to losing Declan Rice in the summer of 2023. And instead of it being 100 million plus, it could be anything between 70 and 85 million which certainly from Chelsea's point of view, speaking to sources, they believe is far closer to market value. And Rice said during the World Cup, you may remember that you just can't turn down the opportunity to play in the big games and Champions League football. And he watches his friends in the England team talk about it and he sees them on TV and he wants that. So that opens the door to Chelsea, but make no mistake, there's other clubs in that race as well. And I wouldn't call Chelsea the front runners. I think it's too early to say. Rice won't be available though in January, which is why it becomes quite interesting as to what then Chelsea do. And the same can be said for Jude Bellingham as well. Chelsea are not the front runners, but they're in the race. I don't foresee a scenario, even if Chelsea would love it, and they'd take it if there was a possibility where they win the races for Declan Rice and Jude Bellingham. I think Liverpool are the most confident for Bellingham. Real Madrid are in the equation as well. And that might mean that Chelsea put most of their eggs in the Declan Rice basket, even though, of course, they could sign both and they could work very well together. So then if you're going to sign Rice in the summer, does that then shift the desire to find more of an attacking midfielder, a box-to-box midfielder, a goal-scoring midfielder in January? And the answer to that question might well be yes. So then a dark horse to keep an eye on is someone maybe like a Yuri Tielemans, who Arsenal are considering on a free transfer if he doesn't sign a new deal at Leicester 
in the summer of 2023, but potentially a suitor could put down a low value offer that they think is a bargain, hoping that Leicester take it rather than losing the player on a free. Chelsea haven't made any significant advances on this front, but that's one to watch. Another midfielder is Edson Alvarez, who of course Chelsea tried to sign on the final day of the last window. And the player himself even didn't turn up for training because he was trying to force through the move. So we know 100% that Edson Alvarez wants the move to Chelsea, but Ajax simply didn't want to sell. He's a good age at 25, has won many caps for Mexico. And the beauty of Edson Alvarez is he could be thrown straight into the first team and no doubt have a significant impact, especially because Chelsea have had so many injuries in that midfield area. He also scored in World Cup qualification, isn't necessarily known to be a prolific goal scorer, but if you look at what he did for Ajax in 2021-2022, he still chipped in with five goals in the league in 31 appearances. This season, he's played 12 games and hasn't scored a goal. So you're not necessarily getting a box-to-box scorer, but you are getting somebody that can chip in and comes with the kind of defensive qualities in the centre of the park, even with N'Golo Kante heading back towards fitness, hopefully in the early part of 2023, that could do a job defensively for Chelsea as well. So he's one to watch. And when the window shut, Todd Bowley made it clear to Edson Alvarez that he would be back. So let's see whether he's true to his word. Yeah, I think one thing that's very interesting as well, Ben, like let's just talk about this for a quick second before we move on. Um, Jorginho, obviously Kante's obviously got their contract situation as well, but I find Jorginho far more interesting um, because I I mean, when Graham Potter first came in, I, I remember people saying oh, he won't like Jorginho. Do you remember when uh, Brighton played Chelsea and he literally uh, at the Stamford Bridge game where they drew 1-1, he literally targeted Jorginho specifically and people were like, oh, he won't like him, but Jorginho is just such a dependable player. And not only that, it's his character in the dressing room. Um, And with all of our young players and the young players that we're going to bring in as well, that sort of project, I feel it's important to have experience in the dressing room. Even if he doesn't play as much, say a Declan Rice comes in in the summer and Jorginho is, is kind of the backup. Do you think he will sign a contract extension or do you think both him and Kante could leave, but focusing more on Jorginho? Because I think Kante will probably leave with all his injury issues. Kante doesn't want to leave, by the way. He just wants terms that match his desires. And Chelsea are trying to cut the wage bill and he's one of the older players. And I think that they see Kante as playing less and less. But everyone at Chelsea loves Kante, including the fan base. They know that he's got a key role to play in the short term. But when you offer a new contract, you have to think about the long term and be prepared to lose a player if it just doesn't make financial sense to tie them down again. So that's the challenge with Kante. And obviously, if Chelsea find replacements in the centre of the park, they can be more bullish in how they negotiate with Kante because they don't have the same urgency to pander to his demands. So it's a very amicable two-way conversation with Kante. It's just they're miles apart in terms of the package on offer. Kante wants a longer-term contract and he wants to be compensated far higher than Chelsea are prepared to. And you may have noted with Barcelona and Lewandowski, what they did was they offered him a long-term deal, but the wages dropped over time because of an anticipation that in two or three seasons, Lewandowski could still be at Barcelona, but playing less. And I think Bowley's of that belief as well, that you could offer a player an incentive-driven deal that starts high and drops low, But when players have got counter offers that 
simply give them what they want, then they can return to the table and say, match this or I'm walking away. And N'Golo Kante loves London. He wants to stay in London for now and he wants to stay at Chelsea, but he simply won't unless the terms are matched. And at the moment, the clubs are quite some distance apart. With Jorginho, it's a more formative process. The contract talks haven't really began in any kind of significant or formal way, but I fully expect Chelsea to offer Jorginho a competitive new deal. It's just not certain whether he'll sign one. And the good news is that Jorginho now, compared to Jorginho at the beginning of the window, has a different mindset. And that's not just because his friend Kaladu Koulibaly has joined. It's because he feels still integral and wanted and he likes the man management of Potter and he believes that Chelsea are going to take great strides forwards and also add more quality. So he can see the project more than most. And he believes that the club see him as a part of it. So whereas Juventus, for example, were keeping tabs on him and maybe three, four months ago, there was a feeling he could go last summer. Now I think he will very seriously consider a new deal. And it will again come down to the financials and whether or not Jorginho gets the length of contract and the terms. And Chelsea are in a bit of a difficult position, I feel, because not only do they have to be consistent with what they offer, but they have to stay true to their project. And by that, I mean, you can't deny Kante a certain amount of money and then give Jorginho what he wants, because within that dressing room, within the senior players, it sort of sends a message that... It's one rule for one key player and another rule for another. And yes, there's mitigating circumstances, age, potential, what they were on versus what you can afford to give them. But generally, and I am being very, very broad, I think Jorginho Kante fall into that experienced player category. So if you pander to Jorginho and not to Kante, it might cause some unrest, especially with how respected and liked N'Golo Kante also is within that dressing room. And the same obviously applies to Reese James, who signed a new deal, and then Mason Mount, that what James gets becomes a bit of a yardstick for somebody like Mount. So when you have lots of contract renewals all happening together with junior and senior players, you have to be very careful that you don't overpay the young ones or sign somebody and raise the bar of your wage bill and then create unrest with your senior players. And this is a challenge because it's less frequent in football that you have to have these many contract talks with these many players of different ages, of different talents, of different potentials, of different longevities. And not only are Chelsea's owners new, but they're having to do a lot at once. So don't be surprised if one contract talk influences another contract talk and Chelsea have to make some concessions as a result, because this isn't like you and me, where if I get a pay rise, I might not share it with you. Everything plays out in the public domain. And even if footballers don't admit it, they know exactly what their teammates are earning. They know exactly what the structures and the scales are. Dressing rooms are like this. And therefore, when someone gets a bump, even if they don't admit the exact number, you can bet your bottom dollar that the vast majority of their teammates are well aware. And then they're judging their own potential earnings and what they think they're worth on at least what they perceive to be the percentage increases. So it's not so much he got 
200,000, I want 200,000. It's more, he was playing well and he's in his mid-20s or his 30s. He's an experienced player within the squad, I'm basically saying, or a key player within the squad. And we know that he's got a X percentage increase or we know that they've given him a clause that allows for X, Y, and Z. So then the next player that steps up is basically going to ask for exactly the same ratio in terms of a pay rise or the same kind of terms. And therefore, if you need five or six to sign collectively, or if you're bringing in new players so you've got high influx of contracts, then you can end up overspending collectively because in order to keep the balance within your squad, both financially but in terms of unity, you just can't set a precedent where you pander to one player, but then you reject the same kind of terms with another. So I do think, regardless of whether Chelsea is successful or not, the Kante and Jorginho contract situations might actually influence each other. Yeah, I think the, the key words you mentioned in all of that was balance. I think that's what Todd Bowley um, and obviously Bedadik Bali, who is obviously heavily involved as well, and potentially the new board have to, have to take into consideration and really try and find that right sweet spot, that right balance. So, um, you know, not everyone can be happy, but, you know, the, the vast majority can be happy. So, yeah, Ben, let's talk about the board structure then, because so many people, and it's the reason why I wanted to do this episode, to be honest, is because so many people constantly ask me, like, Who's doing what? What are they going to do? What's this guy doing? You know, what's his role? So from your understanding, let's go through one by one. Uh, we'll get as many done as possible um, before you have to go. And um, just outline what they're going to do within Chelsea. Um, because, of course, we know that each individual has also been given fancy titles. And I think Chelsea fans just want to know, right, who's doing the transfers and contract negotiations? Who's scouting? Who's, you know, scouting and then putting those names onto the board uh onto the higher board and um you know who's who's doing the multi-club model like there's lots of different questions so talking about breaking news during this uh during this podcast as well Matt Law um has put a report out in the last 20 minutes saying it's understood um from sources Christopher Vivelle has now been given clearance to work in England so potentially that was what was holding it up so let's start with him Ben Christopher Vivelle he seems like the key guy in all of this the guy that's taken the the longest um, what's his role going to be? Because I think technical director is is the title he's been given, but what is your understanding on, on his role at, at Chelsea? That's correct. And the work permit definitely allows Chelsea to now proceed and announce. And because he was sacked, he'll be able to start immediately as well as my understanding. There's nothing stopping him because his contract was terminated and it wasn't a notice period. He can walk straight into Chelsea Football Club and therefore join Paul in Stanley. And technical director is going to be, for now, as far as Vivelle is concerned, a very Chelsea-specific role. So when people ask about what everyone's doing, I've said this many times, but I'll reiterate it because I think it's a good starting point for any name we discuss. There's no point worrying about the titles at this point because the dynamic is far more important. And what Todd Bowley is doing, and I'm simplifying this, but I think it's the best way of understanding it, is he's trying to build a multi-club model that to some extent nods to Manchester City but within that multi-club model the way they recruit is far similar to Liverpool with a transfer committee and a decision by numbers and then of course there's that influence of the Red Bull model in the sense that Bowley's multi-club model is not Manchester City's version it's far more youth-led 
So there's parallel things going on. There is the global group, which allows you to find and spot and develop young talent and provides pathways. And then in addition to that, there's the Chelsea-centric stuff. And there's overlap. And if everything goes according to plan, the global stuff you do benefits Chelsea. But obviously, if the players don't all come through, and statistically they won't, you can still sell them on at a profit. And then from the Chelsea point of view, you need people just focused only on Chelsea, not thinking about partner clubs, not thinking about players for the future. And what's going to happen is you're going to get all of the youth scouting, all of the global aspects, all of the imminent transfer window stuff, and all of the forward planning transfer window stuff feeding up to a committee of four or five, and also Bedagag Bali and Todd Bowley, and then they will make a decision by numbers, which is basically what Liverpool do. And key to the success of that is not any individual or title, it's actually the freedom to debate and challenge. So believe it or not, what Liverpool do is at a lower level, they appoint people who only know football or know nothing about football or only know science or only know injuries or only know numbers. Some people don't even know who the player Liverpool are looking at is. They just see data and they get asked to analyse it only looking at numbers. Other people only go to games and each of them do a report because it's a perspective. And then it goes up a level to your head of scouting or your director of data and then from there, it reaches the senior decision makers and then they will discuss, debate, have freedom to challenge and make a decision. And it's all done quite quickly, obviously, if it's urgent. But some of these names, some of this data, some of these targets are with a view to 2024, 2025. And that is a functional model. And there has to be a fluidity. So that's the first thing to say. So then Vivelle is technical director, but Chelsea obviously already have a technical director as well in place in Lawrence Stewart. And one, Stewart will be slightly more globally focused and the other, Vivelle, will be more Chelsea-centric. But there will inevitably be overlap and it will be really interesting to see whether after all of this, Vivelle is still only called technical director or whether he's given an extension or a change to his title that defines the role a bit more clearly. But in essence, any technical director is forward planning. So Vivelle will forward plan for Chelsea and Stuart will work with him, but also look at younger options and group-led options that are far more in advance. But because a technical director is always planning, there really won't be much difference between what they do, at least not until the multi-club model is built. So again, it's not about titles. It's about expert individuals that can work together, which is why perhaps when Chelsea fans were saying, go out there and get Campos or bring in a Michael Edwards, that's not as important as having a dynamic. And therefore, with Potter and Wynne Stanley, his personal recruitment expert, and then with McCauley, the sort of direct bridge between manager and board, you've got three people that have worked together effectively. So that's a good core that is going to allow structure. And even though you said Vivelle is going to be the key linchpin, I'm actually not so sure because I think Win Stanley is going to be the one that's the most important because he will, for now anyway, step up from his Brighton role and take on, even if it's not by name, elements of sporting director roles. 
And Vivelle, again, may be called technical director, but will fulfill certain day-to-days that are more closely associated with the sporting director. So once again, the title doesn't really have too much relevance here. But what I would say is that Vivelle and Wynne Stanley will be the most important two in terms of structuring the committee. And then Joe Shields will come in. And even though at Southampton, he stepped up from largely working at a junior and youth level to senior recruitment, he'll mix and match the two. So Shields will still be looking for young talents, but will obviously be heavily involved in more senior targets as well. And then Lawrence Stewart will come in. And until the multi-club model is built, he will also be very Chelsea-centric. But I think over time, he'll start to broaden his horizon a little bit. And Stuart, by the way, doesn't start until February. So he'll have no stamp whatsoever on the January transfer window. That's important to say as well. And then for now, as I've reported, I think exclusively about three months ago, Bowley's very comfortable in his de facto sporting director position whether that's with an interim title, whether that interim title is removed, or whether he takes no title on but continues to fulfil that role. And until they find someone, either a sporting director or they might even give the title of CEO of football, Bowley will remain above that committee and part of that committee in terms of getting decisions done, as will Berdag Agbali too. So those two on the board are going to be key. And for now, Bowley will be doing the negotiations with Egg Barley and Win Stanley will be making senior recommendations with Vivell. And then in January, Shields and Stewart will join that team, by which time Chelsea will have a much clearer indication of how quickly the multi-club model can develop and whether those names have the ability to really create a defined split between what's global and what's Chelsea, or whether it's just all hands on deck for Chelsea until the model is built. And I sense that for January and for summer planning, it will be very Chelsea-centric. And then by the end of this season, we'll get a clearer sense of what is truly part of the global long-term strategic model and what is more Chelsea-specific and urgent and imminent. But it is basically a transfer committee. It's a decision by numbers. When Stanley and Vivelle are going to be very important to Chelsea and Bowley and Egbali are going to continue for now anyway uh, to be part of the day-to-day negotiations, the reaching out to agents, the getting deals done. And as long as their committee is effective in how they function, Bowley will be very qualified to do that negotiation because all of the information fed up to him will come from a range of experts. There's more depth than ever within Chelsea's recruitment team. I think fans are misguided because they sometimes think that with Marina, it's about one bullish individual that can get the job done with the industry contacts. But that's not what you need in football. You need relationships. And those relationships can come from your sporting director, your technical director, your scout, your head of data, It can be via players and you build over time the relationships and then you assess the market value and you look at data to back up your gut instinct of how the player plays and what the scouts are telling you. And this can come from a variety of people. So it's a bit old fashioned to kind of start with the premise of one good eye for talent or one good negotiator gets things done. As Liverpool have proved, 
this is a better way forward. So this isn't Bowley being authoritarian. As long as he listens to his transfer committee, doing the negotiations is well within his comfort and remit. And the same can be said for Egbali as well. And then we wait and see whether come the summer or before the summer, they replace themselves with someone by title that is a sporting director or somebody close to that. And then the final thing on the board, I think I would say, is just Jonathan Goldstein is hugely important. Doesn't get spoken about a lot, but I would say Goldstein for me is probably the most important person on the Chelsea board, which might sound quite odd, when you consider that Todd Bowley is interim sporting director, chairman and minority owner, and Berdag Bali is majority owner and heavily involved in the day-to-day. But Jonathan Goldstein, for me, is the most football savvy on the board. He's going to be vital to the renovation of Stamford Bridge. He will lead on that project along with external appointments. But he also knows football. And my understanding from talking to sources is the only person on the entire Chelsea board from the new ownership that Thomas Tuchel had respect for, had time for, and respected their football opinion of, was Jonathan Goldstein. Now, we have to take this with a pinch of salt because Thomas Tuchel didn't get on with the ownership group, but he certainly respected Jonathan Goldstein. And Jonathan Goldstein is also CEO of Kane and Bowley and him work closely together. And Goldstein runs the day-to-day of that business. And obviously, Bowley works alongside him. And they have a regular back and forth whilst Bowley juggles various other things. And I understand that Jonathan Goldstein could end up taking a step back from some of his other commitments and business interests and take much more of a day-to-day involvement and investment in Chelsea. And we know that Chelsea have Tom Glick, who is the president of business operations. And we wait and see whether there's scope for Chelsea to give by either name or nature a CEO title as well. And were they to do so, I would imagine, it's only my personal opinion, that Jonathan Goldstein is a very strong candidate for that type of role, whether he's given the title or not. So the glue that I think holds the board together on their day-to-day is actually not Bowley or Egbali. They perhaps are the glue that hold together transfer negotiations or hiring and firing or even financials. But the actual chemistry of the whole football club, the dynamic of how the business operates, the culture, the relationship with the fan base, the strategy behind moving forwards and succeeding on the football side and how the board impact that on a day-to-day level anyway, I think is all being held together by Jonathan Goldstein. And I think that his role is only going to enhance over time at the football club. It's very interesting what you said there about, obviously, Thomas Circle respecting Jonathan Goldstein. Um, And just in general, like how you explain the whole structure of it, like leading up, these football experts leading up to Todd Bowley, just for the meantime, until we do, or if we do end up getting that sort of sport and director role and Todd Bowley takes a step back and does other things. It all sounds great. It all sounds exciting. But I'm just sitting here like, they must have had a really, really big disagreement with Tuchel over just about everything. Because, like, the whole news we got in the summer was like, you know, Todd Bowley that they weren't happy with you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I was reading was they weren't happy with Tuchel essentially not cooperating or talking to them enough. You know, Tuchel wanted to coach the team, which is fair enough, but obviously I, I also read that he sent his agent to transfer meetings instead of himself, but 
from my perspective, and literally all Chelsea fans thought, well, like this would be this structure that they're building now with the football experts on the board leading up to Bowley would be amazing with Thomas Tuchel in charge. But he's gone. Do, do like do you have a a feeling or any like information on just why they couldn't? wait it out and do this with Thomas Tuchel instead of Graham Potter because for me I'm just like you know for what you're saying there with Cole McCauley kind of being the bridge for, for Graham Potter into the board and then to obviously Todd Bowley Todd Bowley obviously has and will and I'm sure Barley will connect with Graham Potter maybe perhaps a lot more maybe Potter will be more open to talking to Todd Bowley and Bedani Barley but I mean Tuchel himself praised them a lot so I'm just wondering where it all went wrong with Tuchel because for me, like having Tuchel in charge and having, you know, maybe he had someone like McCauley and then he had this board structure leading up to Bowley. That would be perfect, but that just didn't happen, did it? Like something must have gone majorly wrong along the way. Yeah, and it did. And there's two sides to every story, but you have to bear in mind that if you like the model and Thomas Tuchel didn't, it's untenable. And there were simply strategic differences between the new ownership group and Thomas Tuchel. And they came in with an open mind. They did a hundred day or so review of the club and that included the manager. And Tuchel had a way of doing things. He wanted full control on the football side. He wasn't as open as Graham Potter to decisions by numbers. And he shut out the ownership group. Now that's not a criticism because some would argue the ownership group were too hands-on. And ultimately it's a very interesting and difficult dynamic in many ways because they've inherited the club at a difficult time after all the sanctions when the very license was to some extent under threat and they've come straight in during a transfer window and all Thomas Tuchel's thinking about is pre-season the amount of outgoings and the desire to in particular strengthen the defense and of course make attacking reinforcements as well and then new owners that he doesn't yet have a relationship with come in and on the one hand, they are his boss. But on the other hand, they've assumed some football responsibilities, which put them more on a parity with the manager. And that's what's so intriguing, that when Berdag Bali asks what went on in a team meeting, which happened, for example, does Thomas Tuchel have to tell him? And if he's a recruitment consultant working under Bowley, then Tuchel absolutely doesn't have to share anything if he believes that that team meeting should stay between him and his players. But if suddenly Egbali or Bowley says, we're also your boss, we're also the owners of the football club, it's a very difficult dynamic. And I think that that was the problem. There was definitely a friction between Egbali and Tuchel. Bowley, from what I gather, is more amenable. He's a more people-orientated person who can take confrontation and stress and drama and deal with it more politically. And Egbali is more calm, but arguably cutthroat in how he does business. And I think that just comes from the fact that he's part of an investment firm that's used to making decisive decisions and thinking about things in black and white. So again, in saying all of this, I'm not being critical of Tuchel, Agbali or Bowley. I'm just saying they're three very different personalities. Tuchel wears his heart on his sleeve and was happy with the way that Chelsea was structured before the new ownership group. 
and liked working with Marina and was surprised at the amount of outgoings before incomings came in and fans might well share that view. And then Egg Barley was very much about we have to rip off the band-aid and sort out the football club quickly and decisively. And I think Bowley, right at the top, understands it from both perspectives. He wanted to listen to Tuchel and give him a chance, but eventually the overwhelming feeling from the new board was just they were strategically not the right fit. So there's a huge amount of respect for Thomas Tuchel as a coach. But the reason why Tuchel left is because he asked for more responsibility. He was given some autonomy, and then he didn't balance that particularly well whilst a pre-season was going on and the stress of the beginning of the season. And I think a lot of managers might have struggled in that environment, but it all really started in pre-season. And when Chelsea lost 4-0 to Arsenal, Thomas Tuchel mouthed off about signings being needed, but he also, to some extent, threw his toys out the pram behind the scenes as well. And I think the ownership group were not really happy when a manager they'd given autonomy to was effectively blaming the new ownership group on not moving quick enough in the market because Tuchel was part of that. So then you can come back to things like Jules Koundé and did he do enough to lure the player over before the whole saga with Barcelona when Chelsea were really the only contender? You can also look at the Ronaldo debate and say who was right or wrong there in terms of how they handled themselves, taking out whether Ronaldo should or shouldn't have joined Chelsea and an offer should have been made. I think that Tuchel felt like Bowley kept bringing up Ronaldo and was annoyed by it. And I think Bowley didn't really care that Tuchel didn't want Ronaldo, but himself was surprised at Tuchel's reaction and found him quite tough to work with as a result. And obviously, was Tuchel even right to mouth off at Bowley suggesting Ronaldo because Bowley wasn't doing that as the owner. Bowley was doing that as the interim sporting director. And an interim sporting director is perfectly entitled to suggest a player to his manager. So I think there was just a breakdown so, in so communication. Like, sorry, Ben. So Tuchel got very annoyed from your understanding of even the idea of Cristiano Ronaldo possibly joining Chelsea. Tuchel got annoyed, not by the idea, but by the fact that he thought the chapter was closed. Ronaldo was raised as a possibility after Mendes spoke to Todd Bowley. And then, then when Tuchel was part of the conversation, he said he simply wasn't interested in the player. He was the wrong age, the wrong fit, the wrong personality. There were other targets in mind. And, you know, at this point, Tuchel was looking at Aubameyang, who ended up joining, and also some younger players for the future, so Ronaldo was just not somebody under any circumstances that Thomas Tuchel wanted to sign. And my understanding is that Thomas Tuchel said to the ownership group when it was informally raised, it will always be a no. And the other thing, even though it wasn't a conversation as in he called him to ask an opinion, but about a year and a half, two years ago, Thomas Tuchel had spoken to Ralph Ranić, and Ranić had told him all about Ronaldo from his time at Manchester United as well. So Tuchel was 100% clear. There were no circumstances through brand benefit, through a resurgence in form, through a pay cut, through anything, even injuries, to every single striker at Chelsea Football Club. There were no circumstances in which Thomas Tuchel wanted to consider Cristiano Ronaldo. And after he thought he made that clear, the name Ronaldo kept cropping up towards the end of the window and Tuchel was frustrated and bemused, as per his side of the story anyway, and talking to sources close to him, that the name just kept coming up. But obviously, part of the issue here 
is that Tuchel started, I think, with the belief that this ownership group just didn't know enough about football to be bringing these names to him. I think he was uncomfortable having a minority owner, a chairman, in Bowley as his interim sporting director. And that's his perspective. But you've got to bear in mind that the flip side is this ambitious ownership group. Bowley is an experienced negotiator. He's worked well in other sectors. He's still surrounded by experts. Bruce Buck is still a senior advisor at the club at that time. Marina's still there if needed. So Chelsea, even though it wasn't painted this way, have actually got more, not less, because they've still got the core names if they need them. And they've got Bowley and they've got Agbali. And now, of course, heading into January, they've got even more names as well. So they weren't as thin as people are making out. And Bowley is very amenable. He's a people person. He will always give people time. And in that 100-day review, as much as they respected Tuchel, they just thought that he was the wrong fit, the wrong personality almost to take on that added responsibility and be a part of a new model, even though they respected him as a coach. And that was not an easy decision. It was not necessarily so unanimous that they just knew that they were going to make it after the board upheaval and after that Arsenal preseason loss that I mentioned, I think that they let it drag on and on and on and on as long as they possibly could to give Thomas Tuchel the fairest possible opportunity to win them over off the field because they were so won over by him as a coach. But eventually it was clear that he wasn't going to be right to take the club forwards. And that wasn't just results driven. I think it was a reality regardless of what happened against Dinamo Zagreb in the Champions League. And you can look at it two ways, because if they knew they were getting rid of Thomas Tuchel that far in advance, why did they give him Aubameyang, for example, knowing that Aubameyang was quite clearly for Thomas Tuchel on the last day of the window? And that maybe tells you that they were still undecided at that point, even if they were thinking about it. And then obviously the flip side is that as soon as Tuchel went, they appointed Graham Potter very quickly, which obviously tells you that they had done some due diligence in the weeks leading up to Dinamo Zagreb. And that was before Aubameyang joined. So there's two slightly conflicting narratives here as to how early they knew that they would have to replace Thomas Tuchel. But one thing I can tell you categorically is that everyone in the ownership group were very intent, even when things got difficult, even when there was friction, to keep giving him as many opportunities as they could. But then after that Zagreb defeat, they just decided that the situation was untenable. And that wasn't just because of football results. It was almost because of a clash of personalities and a difference of opinion on strategy going forward. I could listen to this whole two-call um, Bowley, Egbali, summer transfer window, all the narratives, all the different opinions. I could listen to this for days. It's, it's very, very interesting. Didn't necessarily want to go down this route in the episode because I know a lot of people on my Twitter release saying, oh, stop talking about Tuchel. But, you know, what we was talking about led us there. So it is what it is, guys. Sorry if you're sick of hearing Tuchel. I know we all miss him. but And some people don't. Some people thought it was the right decision. But, um, yeah, Ben, probably got time for, for one more topic. So we're going to go back to the fan questions sent in for you um so let's choose one here uh, okay this one comes from el elden lardo hopefully i've pronounced your name right mate um so ben he asks you are chelsea in the process of upgrading any facilities slash planning to not necessarily stadium as we all know that if so what facilities the facilities are going to be a big part for sure and as the question alludes to the stadium will be the long-term aim 
And I still understand, contrary to other options out there, but you do have to explore multiple options, that they're pretty fixed on a phased redevelopment of Stamford Bridge. That's their top priority, and it's what they're working towards. So I think fans will be relatively happy with that approach. Because I've it's... Sorry, Ben, I've got a question on the stadium quickly as well that's just popped up. As you said um, about the stadium, obviously, remember when they took over, they promised, I think, was it 1.7 billion, I think, of extra investment over X amount of years. Now, I've read reports that by doing it stand by stand, it would actually, well, we don't know how much eventually it's going to cost, but there's rumours of like 500 million. So I guess that leaves them quite a bit of money over the over the year, um, over the years that they've agreed to, to upgrade facilities as well and, and any other thing. Do you, what, what do you reckon that extra money that doesn't go towards the stadium will be used on as well? I guess you could... But, yeah, um, I mean, in the yeah. tender when they bid for Chelsea, the pledged investment was for a variety of things. It wasn't just about upgrading facilities. It was about modernising the entire football club. So that includes things like the foundation and also other things connected to the stadium that aren't specific to football. So can they develop anything new that generates income, restaurants, hotels and so on and then in addition to that clubs are always looking to spruce up and change their training facilities the opportunity to do that is not just out of ambition it's often a necessity because constantly things that you use at a training facility need changing or altering and sometimes even building as well whether it's for example needing an oxygen chamber to speed up recovery or learning about a new bit of science and then having to buy something all of these kind of things cost money and you have to kind of stay with the times then of course a huge proportion of money was going to go into developing the women's team as well so it's hard to know exactly what the split is. And I also think that the pledged amount doesn't mean anything because if they can spend less, they would, and then have money left over to put back into the football. And if they need to spend more, they also will. And the other thing as well is that what you spend isn't just deducting from your budget because you can offset that with commercial income coming in. So if they redevelop the stadium at let's just use your figure, 500 million, then what does that do in terms of adding value to the football club and also income from fans going to games who then might buy shirts or food or programmes and far more importantly, sponsorship as well around any stadium development. So you can offset the costs that you spend and what you're looking to ultimately do is make a profit over time. So on their books, when they redevelop the stadium, they then will be trying to commercialise that redeveloped stadium. So if England bid for a World Cup, Chelsea Stadium is the one that's picked because it's more modern. They make money off that. Music concerts, can they end up hosting women's games at Stamford Bridge with more frequency and making money off that? So a stadium redevelopment isn't really about spending and then losing and having less money. It's about coming up with a strategy to commercialise that redevelopment over time and ultimately make money, which is why the cost of the redevelopment won't be of, I don't think anyway, huge concern, especially not with someone like Johnny Goldstein leading on it because he's well aware of how to redevelop and make money from that redevelopment. But the stadium's one part and the women's team is a big part of the investment as well. And then I fully expect them to invest in partners that are a bit more unsung, but are vital. So they need to revamp their data system. They need to look at their injury prevention. And sometimes these aspects require third parties to 
find your data and analyze it. And sometimes they require platforms to be built. So there's more synergy between the data. So all kind of departments within Chelsea can access that and use it and input it. And you might not think that that's a big task, but finding the right partner and building the right system and doing so relatively secretly at times as well to make sure that other clubs don't cotton on to what you're doing can be a challenge and also costs an element of money. I don't think we're talking millions and millions and millions, but I do think that that will be a priority. It's not just about developing physical things. It's also about looking at partners or aspects of the football club that can just create more continuity whereby all levels of Chelsea on men and women benefit and can find the same things and input to the same things. And over time, that will have a big payoff on and off the field. Yeah, I think um, what you mentioned there, especially with just everything about the, the extra facilities and stuff, like I, I think injuries is a is a big thing we need to look at, invest in. Um, obviously, we let go of the, of the lead doctor, but, you know, there's reasons behind that. I think... In investing in that area like the medical area will be really really good for Chelsea as well something I'm really looking forward to because we just get injuries all the time and I know not every injury is because we overtrain or things like that but yeah it's it's still we have far too many injuries in my opinion I think we had the most injuries of, of the yeah. whole Premier League clubs in, in the last year so anyway Ben I know you have to go Um, very very good episode lots of information do you want to do any plugs anywhere where we can find you obviously we know your, your Twitter at Jacobs Ben but anywhere else yeah, I'll give you a plug. I'll just add as well, finally, with the injuries that, again, fans will see Chelsea as picking up injuries, some preventable, some not preventable, but it all comes down to data once again. And what Manchester City in particular do very well is they put all kinds of different things from AI style boots to Lord knows what on their chest, <laughs> on their car. City are just different level, aren't they? <laughs> But the reason why they do it is because it gives you a projection. And this is what I mean about coming back to Liverpool as well, even though they've struggled with injuries in the build-up to the season and during it, that when you have, and it kind of touched upon a few points, when you have a buy-in at the football club from all departments, it really boils down to the dynamic, the ability to disagree and sometimes delegate so imagine if you were Thomas Tuchel because this is where I think there's crossover and you had a situation where you're monitoring all the Chelsea players to a greater degree of course Chelsea monitor of course Chelsea try and project but Manchester City have simply got more tools more data I mean they've got 360 degree cameras all around their training facilities and they'll do set sessions where players are really only logging things like their recovery times and the amount of distance run. And again, I want to make it clear that Chelsea have got a lot of this, but Manchester City have just got better structure. But regardless of that, when you've then got that information at your disposal, what do you do with it? In other words, and I think we find this in basketball as well, who are very good at it. If I said to you, and I'm specifically now talking about Thomas Tuchel, Reese James is 100% fit for your season opener and he wants to play. But our data says he shouldn't play because there is a higher risk in a first game of the season based on what we've run in training, based only on data. He is the most likely Chelsea player of all players, even if we think he's 100% fit to pick up an injury. And we can't explain why other than it's a data projection. And we've ran all kinds of formulas about 
James going from a week of preseason to a first game, the weather, it's cold and it makes him more susceptible to pick up an injury on the field. And we think because of the player that he's playing against, he's going to be more stretched. And that's also going to put pressure on this part of his body and that part of the body. But it's basically speculative. So what do you want to do? Obviously, a manager like Thomas Tuchel would say, well, I'm playing him, he's 100% fit. And a fan would say, play him, he's 100% fit. And of course, that's a very extreme example. But if it got to the point where James was only 85% fit, and that was what the data was saying, then you get a more interesting dynamic and your injury prevention specialists and your data prevention specialists are saying, it's not worth the risk where if you're to play him, it should be a maximum based on our algorithms at 60 minutes. And then you've got to sub him. And some managers would say, I appreciate that because that is people only looking at his body. They're not looking at the occasion. They're not looking at the opposition. They're looking at his body plus his energy, plus previous injuries, plus who he's up against, plus weather, all kinds of things that maybe some fans listening to are laughing at. And there is a balance here because you can't be only science and you can't be only gut instinct. But I think it's a good example because you have to have a manager that sometimes is prepared to bow to that data. And other times, of course, is prepared to say, what on earth are you talking about? That's nonsense. Don't even have a conversation with me. And I think that Potter is maybe more open. And I'm not, by the way, saying that Chelsea are going to do that to that level or that extreme. But what I am saying is that there are clubs that only look at that data dispassionately and make a recommendation to the manager. And if the manager just throws that recommendation in the bin without any forethought, they're the wrong manager for this kind of model. So it's not to say the manager gets the power taken away from them. It's just to say that it can be helpful at times to only look at a scenario on data, especially when it pertains to scouting or injuries. And that, I think, is what the better clubs do. And it just gives you one perspective. So you can ignore it. But what you shouldn't do is say that perspective is laughable, is irrelevant. And I just think that Thomas Tuchel versus Potter was more inclined to head in that direction. We'll never know for sure because Chelsea were never in that position to be making such a detailed scientific recommendation, but it wouldn't surprise me if they head in that direction over time. So it's just something to consider that the success of your manager and your model is about respecting opinions from different areas and different perspectives rather than thinking you've got the autonomy to decide on absolutely everything. And then a manager will always make his selection, but should be informed by these niche data-driven areas of information that just might help. And the reason why I raise basketball is because there's simply no issue in basketball, right? They run the data, they run the numbers. And you've got a game, let's say, where LeBron James is playing. And before the game even starts, you get told he's on a minute's restriction. We've never seen that in football. And you have to ask why. If it's okay for a basketball player and a coach agrees it in basketball that that player's played too many minutes, so he's coming off. Why do we just assume in football that it's 90 minutes for your star player if they seem fit in training and your medical staff are happy? Surely there's a deeper analysis that says, well, if James plays on a Tuesday and a Saturday, then when they then play on the next Tuesday, even if he says he's fit, he can only play 30 minutes, whether he starts or comes on as a sub. 
because over a whole season, it just plays the odds of protecting him from an injury. You don't know when that injury is going to come and you don't know whether that's going to be preventable or not preventable. But what you can say statistically is if Reese James plays more than X games or X minutes or any player, they become more likely to get injured under certain environments or conditions. And I think basketball is very good at just preempting the injury, whereas I think football reacts to injuries rather than prevents them because maybe managers are fearful of resting if they don't think they have to rest, even if the data suggests that you should. And I feel like Manchester City with such a deep squad and even Liverpool to some extent are better at that. But to do that, you obviously have to have buy-in from your manager. So I'm not saying that Thomas Tuchel was against that, by the way, but I'm just saying that Graham Potter is more open to these data-driven modern techniques that share a little bit of the decision-making and that's why he's a fit for the model. And then in terms of the plugs, which was your actual question, rather than this five minute rant on data and injuries, you can follow me at Jacobs Ben on Twitter and it's been good coming on. <laughs> Honestly, that was a great way to wrap up the episode because it's very, very interesting. I want to, you guys, if you've, um, if you've made it to this point in the episode, please let me know what you think about what Ben just said about the whole data um, data and the whole prevention of injuries. Because I do agree. I, even though I feel like Thomas Tuchel is, is that individual um, or a individual that would actually care about this lot of things, you know, this side of things, the, the, the data, the, the finer stuff. Um, he seems like a very smart individual and obviously a top coach. It's 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 interesting. Just from the outset, just from a fan's perspective, looking at Potter and Tuchel, I would agree with you that Potter may be more open, um, at least sort of looking at these things and not just go, oh, no, you know, it's, it's my way or no way. I do feel like Tuchel can be a bit cutthroat as well. But anyway, Ben, thanks so much for coming on. Really, really good episode. Hopefully I'll have you back again soon in the January window or further beyond. And uh, yeah, guys, thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed, please give a five-star rating on Spotify. It really, really helps out. Um, reach out to sponsorships, etc. And more episodes coming soon in the January window. If you celebrate Christmas, have a really good Christmas. 10 days until then. Not sure if I'll have an episode out. So if I don't, enjoy your Christmas, guys. And I will see you next time.